0: Yes, I am, the Bible geek, Robert M. Price, and I uh, owe you uh, an episode to dig into some of these exciting questions. They're always great, and uh, sometimes they're repetitive, but uh, I can't assume everybody's heard every podcast, and sometimes I have something new to say, so I'll be saying some. Uh, let me uh, shamelessly, uh, or is it shamefully? I guess it's shameful, but I'm shameless if I don't care if it's shameful. Yeah, anyway, um, uh, you might want to check out some new books uh, of mine. Uh, a couple of them are not necessarily available, but soon will be and can be ordered off of Amazon. One is Holy Fable, Volume 4, in which I uh, deal with post-canonical texts that are deemed scripture. They're either written in the modern time or were rediscovered in uh, modern times, and these writings are five of them. (laughs) However, the whole book is (laughs) over 700 pages. Uh, There's the Book of Mormon, the Of course, I don't deal with the whole darn book, but a bunch of topics and sections of it, and the Gospel of Thomas, and uh, the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the, uh, the lyrics of Jesus Christ Superstar, which uh, form a fascinating uh, case of redaction, criticism, and... Uh, uh well I'll leave it at that. Uh and uh and the necronomicon of HP Lovecraft. What the heck is that doing in there? Well, uh you may know that there are people that believe there really was a necronomicon stemming from medieval times and uh, wherever it came from, they're using it. I attended a uh a lecture by the author of it, I think a uh, guy named Simon, uh, in the back room of the, uh, um, what the heck was it called? The uh, Magical Child Bookstore in Greenwich Village. Uh, S.T. Joshi and Lynn Carter were with me. It was quite an adventure. Uh, let's see. It uh, reminds me of the time uh, Lynn and another friend of mine, we're going to see the first Conan movie in the theater, only to find out that it wasn't there anymore. So Lynn took us into a local topless bar. But anyway, uh, okay. Uh, see here, and uh, I think you'll get a kick out of uh, what can be known about these uh, these texts. Then uh, I got uh, you'll recognize me on the cover as the Angel Moroni. Uh, Then there's, uh, this one's out already, I think, uh, called uh, Reinterpreting the New Testament, which is a bunch of essays of mine on different uh, New Testament-related subjects, some of which you will have seen in the Journal of Higher Criticism if you read that. And uh, I'm pretty proud of them. Then, uh, let's see, a fiction collection of mine, Horrors and Heresies, uh, there are some biblical-related materials in there, such as my spin on the Gerasene Demoniac, uh, called uh, The Son of Jehovah versus the Cyclops. little Dennis MacDonald stuff in there. Uh, then uh, uh, there's the Savage Sword of Jehu, the Old Testament king who was uh, sort of made into a Robert E. Howard character in this. And uh, one that involves a Howard character, Cormac Fitzgeoffrey, fanatical warrior, and he is on uh, Monsagor, the citadel of the Cathars, besieged by the Catholics, where he has to take the Holy Grail to safety. And there's the Nativity of the Avatar, about Narlathotep's advent on Earth, and Uh, plenty of other stuff I think you'll get a kick out of it all these are available on Amazon though one or two of them may not be out quite yet Uh, so all sorts of literary riches let's say we get into those questions they're uh, awaiting and they've waited long enough so here goes a question from Nick, furiously trying on an eye patch. Comic book fans will get the reference. Greetings, O oh Thrice Greatest Geek. May your days last in happiness. Uh, they are so far. I hope the same is true with you. I just heard the latest episode of The Bible Geek, in which The Thrice Greatest Geek discussed various theories involving the unnamed young man and Greek neoniskos. Sort of sounds like... the baking uh, goods manufacturer ritz crackers and so on Uh, in the gospel of mark i happen to have a pet theory on the subject i'm sure i'm not the first person to have thought of this but i'm curious What the geek thinks, on the night when Jesus is arrested, a certain young man runs away from the arresting party. The pursuers attempt to apprehend him, but catch only his linen garment. The young man himself runs away naked, Mark 14, 51 through 52. After Jesus dies, uh, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. The following morning, a group of women goes to the tomb. Into the tomb, but the women find the tomb open, sitting inside is a young man dressed in a white robe mark sixteen five who announces the resurrection of the women to me, this looks like an allegorical presentation of the two-body doctrine of resurrection clothing, I would surmise, symbolizes the human body. The young man running away from his pursuers, leaving his garment in their clutches, is an allegory for the soul escaping the material world, leaving the body in the demonic clutches of the principalities and powers. The young man appearing in a new robe after losing the old one to the adversary is a symbol of the soul inhabiting what 1 Corinthians 15.44 calls a spiritual body as opposed to a natural body. Does this interpretation make any sense, or is it just another heroic act of biblical ventriloquism? I like this theory better than the one that treats clothing as a symbol of discipleship and the Neoniskos as a placeholder for the reader. When Mark creates a placeholder for the reader, for example, in the story of the prodigal son, well, that's Luke, uh, where the reader is invited to place himself in the position of the prodigal son's older brother, the placeholder character must make a moral choice. Do I forgive my wayward brother or not? and the reader is not told what choice the character made the Neoniskos meanwhile does not seem to face any choice his actions seem to be commensurate with circumstances there doesn't seem to be any space for the reader to insert himself into the story and ask himself what would I have done Uh, let's see Uh, I think this is yeah uh Yeah. Well, uh, this makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I mentioned the last time that you can tie it in with Jesus by saying that this was a sort of Gnostic docetic story originally, that uh, the real Jesus escapes the clutches of his mortal adversaries. uh, And uh, uh, so that the the empty garment left behind is the uh, the worthless physical body which is jesus which Jesus is about to lose on the cross, and uh, the uh, young man clothed in a white robe, which is classic as you suggest, resurrection body imagery is is Jesus himself, as Matthew seems to have thought he might be Matthew seemed to be torn between the Neoniskos in the tomb as being the resurrected Christ or an angel. So he splits the, the character's uh, message into two and gives one to Jesus, one to an angel. Because uh, you notice Mark does not call him an angel, but as you say, a young man, a neoniskos. Um. Neoniskos. Uh, so uh, uh, let's see here. So let's suppose it is supposed to be Jesus. This would kind of remind me of the Gnostic revealer character in the Hymn of the Pearl, which is now embedded in the Acts of Thomas, and uh, there the the uh, revealer is sent from the Pleroma to the earth and uh, or the land of Egypt in the story but it's obviously supposed to be the material world and while there he gets kind of beguiled and seduced into liking that uh, that kind of life and uh lives it up he's kind of a prodigal son and uh then he uh, gets the call capital C uh from home and realizes what am I doing uh he comes to himself again like the prodigal and he strips off the uh the filthy garment of the flesh and returns to the divine pleroma well uh got to admit that does kind of sound like this so that that's a strong interpretation it's always well, nearly always impossible to be sure but i think you may well be right um and and good uh, considerations there now, here's another question about the same thing from Isaac Molyneux, and he says, in your most recent podcast, you were speaking about the young man in the Gospel of Mark who's wearing nothing but a sindon at the arrest of Jesus. I was wondering if you could clarify your link to the young man in the tomb after Jesus' resurrection. About five minutes into the podcast, you said, uh, this young man, who's a at the arrest of Jesus, is the same young man in the empty tomb. Remember, it doesn't say in Mark that he's an angel. He's just a neoniscos, a young man, and he's wearing a linen sindon. Now, that might have something to do with the fact that he was in a tomb. It's a winding sheet. Uh, And I guess that would be the appropriate dress. However, while the young man in Mark 14.51 is wearing a sindon, the young man in the tomb is said to be wearing a stola, I, sheesh, I, yeah, i appreciate the correction you're right i couldn't find any greek textual witness that says the young man in the tomb is wearing a sindon did you just misspeak or perhaps did you just mean both of the young men are said to be wearing linen garments Please feel free to correct me if I've misunderstood what you meant. No, no, you're you're exactly right. Uh, They are similar garments, white linen and all that, and I figured that's close enough. But I have to admit, I I did forget and think that uh, it was a sin done in both cases. So I, I appreciate the correction. I should have looked that up in the Greek beforehand. Thank you, Isaac. Okay, greetings from Luther, Dr. Price. Today I've got a question from a book I picked up on the cheap, Raymond Brown's Anchor Bible series, Introduction to the New Testament. In the same trip, there were cheap-used copies of Bultmann's Faith and Understanding and History of the Synoptic Tradition, SCORE. Yeah, I'm really surprised you found Faith and Understanding. I don't think that's too easy to come across. Yeah, both well worth it. Bravo. Okay, in the book's chapter on Mark, Brown dismisses the troubling episode of Jesus telling his disciples that he speaks in parables so that the public won't understand. Mark 4, 11 through 12. Brown says this, quote, is an offensive text if one does not understand the biblical approach to divine foresight, where what has in fact resulted is often presented as God's purpose. Thus, in Exodus 7 3, God tells Moses of the divine plan to make Pharaoh obstinate so that he will not listen to Moses, a hindsight description of the fact that Pharaoh resisted. Mark is really describing what he sees as the negative result of Jesus' teaching among his own people, the majority of whom did not understand. Uh, and were not converted. And to quote page 133, maybe I'm among those who don't understand the biblical approach Brown references, because I still find it an offensive text. Seems to me he's saying, hey, don't worry, Jesus didn't really preach in parables to ensure the public didn't understand. That's just something Mark said about him to explain their lack of understanding. How is that any better Whatever comfort one can take in Jesus not actually being a jerk, the consequence is that now one has to see a biblical author as presenting Jesus as a jerk. Is that really an improvement, especially for people who look to the Bible for moral and spiritual instruction and guidance? If I'm missing it, can you explain Brown's point differently? Uh... I uh I get the impression brown does not mean that you're supposed to accept this as uh, what uh well it, let's say it's it's a bad apologetic uh, it seems to me he is politely and euphemistically saying that uh mark like the author of exodus is just embarrassed at the lack of success of Moses on the one hand, Jesus on the other, and he's saying uh, I meant to do that right, that uh, uh, oh, oh, I don't think that God's word failed, right oh no, 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 no uh, God wanted them to reject it well that, that is an absolutely unbiblical, but not the way uh, Brown is explaining it, it seems to me Because in Ezekiel, for instance, there is this fatalistic uh, thing. It may be the same thing, uh, but uh, God tells Ezekiel to go and prophesy, and he says, I'll tell you right now, they're not going to accept what you say, but at least they can never say they weren't warned. Uh, You know, I can kind of see that. Uh, Now, Though that may also be an after-the-fact rationalization. But that does make a certain kind of sense. uh, That he's not, it's not saying that uh, God is going to stop these people from from hearing. He just knows what kind of people they are. They're not going to respond to it. What I think is the best, uh, by the way, there are various uh, attempts to clean this up. I believe Joachim Jeremias, who liked, Raymond Brown uh, was a great New Testament scholar, right? I don't want to malign anybody here. I respect both of them and their work, but but Jeremiah said that uh, there's been a, a mistranslation of an underlying Aramaic, uh, and that what uh, Jesus said really did not call for this uh, this. Uh, Oh, what should I say uh, this purpose clause that uh, that it's really it really it should be since I am speaking in figurative language, no wonder a lot of them don't get it uh yeah uh, but I, I don't know if that works linguistically, I guess it's possible, but it seems like a one of those things where you'd only that'd only look good to you if you or try to get out of a tight spot. But there's a similar thing, which I, I take a bit more seriously. I don't know who's proposed this, I'm sure. Like, Well, I'm sure it's. I'm not the first one. But uh, you know how Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, don't throw your pearls before swine or holy things, probably means consecrated food, uh, to dogs. Because if you do they'll turn on you and tear you to pieces. And this seems to me most likely to be uh, a warning not to blab Esoteric truth to people who are not ready for it and may be so affronted by it that uh, you're endangering yourself, like in the Gospel of Thomas, saying 13, where Jesus says to the disciples, Make a comparison, tell me who I'm like. And one of them says, Well, you're a, like a wise uh, philosopher. Another one says, You're like a mighty angel. And then Thomas says, Master, uh, my mouth is incapable of saying what you are like. And Jesus says, Aha, uh, don't call me master because you have drunk from the spring I have measured out. Uh, and uh, he takes him, in other words, you're now my equal, uh, he takes him aside and tells him three things, which Thomas is not going to tell us. Well, when Jesus then leaves, the for no particular reason except that we need him out of the, off stage for the rest of the story. Um, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the other disciples crowd around Thomas and say, "What did he say to you?" Uh, and uh, it, Thomas says, "I'm sorry, guys, but if I were to tell you one of the things he told me, you would pick up stones and." Th- Throw them at me, and then fire would erupt from the stones and destroy you. What? In other words, you're not ready for it. You can't handle the truth. Uh, and it, it's, it's the same thing as pearls before swine. Watch out. Be careful, because the people that you cannot expect to understand this uh, are not going to take it lying down looking, What? That's blasphemy perfect case in point from centuries later, Al-Halaj, the great Sufi mystic sort of a non-dualist he he went around saying in a kind of a trance uh, I am the truth which especially in Islamic idiom meant I am God well, uh, people only needed to hear that and they said this guy is a terrible blasphemer and so they crucified him Uh, Well, uh, the other Sufi mystics uh, said, what did he think he was doing? Uh, He should have known uh, the common uh, Joe Muslim in the street could never understand what he meant, namely that everybody is God. Uh, And look what happened. So be careful as to who you uh, share your esoteric knowledge with. Well, that's exactly the point of that, and, and so it's easy to see Jesus saying, uh, I like he says in the Gospel of Thomas, I impart my wisdom to those who are worthy of my wisdom. That is, uh, you got to be on the wavelength. That's why he finishes up saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not everybody will. Uh, are you on my wavelength? Well, then take it seriously. If you're not, well, it's a nice story. Uh, and uh, that may be the point where the disciples say, "Why are you uh, teaching them with these stories?" And he says, "So that uh, they'll hear what I'm saying, but not understand, uh, and because they're not anyway, right?" And uh, but the, those who are ready for it will. That to me, a Gnostic uh, reading of it makes a lot of sense, uh, and I, I tend to prefer that because there's certainly other Gnostic leaning. Um, sayings, but that's unacceptable to someone like Raymond Brown who, though a great, great New Testament scholar I think sometimes uh, was a little too orthodox Uh, let's see here Uh, this is from Stephen McDonough, he says, any accent is fine, the sillier the better well, uh, okay, how about uh, Chicago? Uh, do you think it's completely of a question that there was a Hebrew original and or a Greek version of, of Daniel? I remember hearing there's a version in the Dead Sea Scrolls correcting a historical goof about the Babylonian king that went crazy. Someone still knew they meant Nabonidus and not Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the the common prefix is the name of the god uh, nebo or Nabu, and if you're a comic fan you know that that was the god whose uh, helmet and amulet kent nelson the archaeologist discovered and donned and became dr fate one of the greatest modern mythical uh, comic book characters anyway uh yeah it could this stem from a similar source at some point someone was disappointed these two great daniel stories they had lying around didn't make the original collection. But is there any definitive evidence this was the translator or someone expanding a cleaner Greek text? Uh, uh, let's see, that's the first question. Well, it's impossible to know, but uh, it does look like Daniel is a patchwork because the first section is a narrative uh, that probably st- or might well have stood on its own, a narrative very... Uh, parallel to that of Joseph in Egypt and of uh, Esther in Persia, and, and like them, Daniel is uh, an alien, a Hebrew who finds himself uh, in the, uh, the the court of a, a pagan empire ruling Israel. And by the excellence of his Jewish lifestyle, he shows his great ability and uh, nobility, and is uh, promoted through the ranks. And uh, and so uh, uh, he has um, he, he, the stories show how he, as well as his buddies uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and uh, Abednego which means servant or worshipper of Nergal, the first enemy of dr fate in the netherworld anyway um, that the, they uh, were superlative and promoted but that no good uh, uh, jealous guy uh, Haman decided to get him in trouble and say, uh, you know, your majesty these guys are not worshipping the statues of our gods and so on what's that? Uh, fry them and throw them to the lion's den with the fiery furnace but God rescues them and so on and the idea is to say to diaspora Jewish youths don't assimilate if you stick with Judaism, some people may look askance at you, but they will see, given enough time, that you are doing the right thing, and they should aspire to be like you, and you'll even get ahead. Uh, so don't think. you got to sell out your Judaism. Uh, and so that's clearly the point of that. But then the second part of Daniel is all these visions, these apocalyptic things and uh, so it looks like that, that could very well be two different sections and uh, the uh, the Greek version of Daniel the uh, the added uh, has additional stories like Bell and the Dragon uh, where uh, you where Daniel Figures out how the priests of Bel or Baal uh, is, uh, uh, and, and there's a dragon statue in there too because he's supposed to be Lotan or Moat, or one of these guys that Baal fought. Uh, that uh, there, the priests are faking uh, the uh, the statues eating. And they bring in food, and the next morning, oh, my gosh, it's gone. And he figures out there's a trap door, et cetera, and that they're just gulling the suckers, and he exposes them. And uh, there's one, uh, Susanna, where this woman is uh, is slandered because this guy wants to to have sex with She won't have it. Uh, and uh, Daniel manages to prove that she's being set up. Uh, and then there's the song of the three young men uh, when shadrach meshach and abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace and they called upon god well what did they say and so there's this really fine poem prayer uh, with them seeking deliverance from god but the, I forget which parts are in Aramaic and which parts are in Hebrew, but that's another reason for thinking it's a composite, that there were Aramaic sections that weren't in the Hebrew, and somebody tried to come up with a critical text of some sort. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have a couple of things in Aramaic. Uh, one of them is this thing you're talking about where uh, King Nabonidus says that uh he was the the Babylonian king whom God struck mad and he grazed on the grass of the wilderness for months before uh Daniel uh healed him and uh, that's uh, that's kind of interesting linguistically that uh exorcism could be referred to as healing and so forth and then there's another one in the most recent batch of revealed dead sea scrolls where an angel is uh predicting the ber- announcing the birth of, of uh, Daniel and speaks about uh how the Messiah or someone is... No, I'm sorry, uh, revealing to Daniel that that there will come this uh, messianic child, etc., etc. He shall be called the Son of God. And it's very much like the Annunciation in uh, in Luke. And so who knows what else there was in the Daniel uh, material. And it does certainly imply it's a patchwork of different texts. And... uh, who knows what the original was? All we know is that you, you had uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, and perhaps original Greek texts, but I don't think we have enough manuscript evidence to know what was original. Uh, Stephen also asks, what's the deal with the Western text tradition? Do we know why it exists or what gave rise to it? Are there places outside the Book of Acts where it preserves significant textual variants, And do you believe there are any uh, places uh, where it's better to accept its reading over the Alexandrian text? Well, I think most of these uh, unusual readings are in Acts with a few in Luke. And uh, there are all kinds of... uh, It's it's like uh, Acts is about 20% longer. Than in the Western text uh, preserved, especially in Codex Bezae, uh, and uh, and uh, that and most of that is not exactly new material. There are no new apostolic sermons, no new adventures of Paul or Peter. What there are is a kind of an expansion of the stuff that's already in there. Uh, so, uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, here is water what prevents me from being baptized in the regular uh, eastern text like the Alexandrian it, it, uh, he just baptizes him on the spot but in the, the uh, western text he says you may if you believe in Jesus Christ etc etc somebody thought you needed to gussy it up a bit to uh, show uh, you had to recite a creed or whatever uh, there are, and most of the others are like uh, expanding the titles of Jesus. There's there's a little bit more to various narratives, but it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, though there are a couple of interesting little items. For instance, um, it's interesting that though the Jerusalem pillars, as Paul calls them in Galatians, they accept Paul when uh paul and barnabas go up to jerusalem to contest with the uh the circumcision party and and so forth uh and uh but he's but paul though he, he gets their blessing he's not made an apostle in fact uh, galatians doesn't say they uh, recognized him as an apostle though we often speak that way uh, and this seems to imply that Luke didn't consider Paul an apostle on the same level with the Twelve, right? But uh, what do you know? In chapter 14 of Acts, in the Alexandrian text, which most translators use, uh, they uh, Paul and Barnabas are twice called the apostles. Now, that seems kind of weird. You could chalk that up to what Mark Goodacre calls editorial fatigue, that he that uh, the author knew that Paul and Barnabas were considered in their own circles as apostles, though he wants to demote them, but he kind of forgets that when he's writing this adventure of them in uh, Lycaonia. Uh, but is it possible a subsequent copyist decided to give him the title and in the western text what do you know in one of the two mentions in acts 14 they are not called the apostles just the names paul and barnabas they are in the other verse but that leaves the door open to wondering if originally acts didn't call them that at all i mean barring some ma- big manuscript discovery will we'll never know um, in luke we have uh, a couple of interesting tidbits in the resurrection narrative that occur only in the Western text. Uh, One of them is, I think that uh, Jesus says at the crucifixion, father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I know it's, that's missing from some manuscripts present in others. Uh, But then when, when you get to the resurrection, uh, we have something like in the gospel of John where, uh, peter and another disciple come to check out the empty tomb they've heard about and then maybe the most important uh, it says in the eastern alexandrian text that jesus on the mount of olives with the disciples on ascension day uh, he is parted from them but in the western text it goes on to say and was taken up into heaven So uh, what's going on there? Uh, Did Luke originally not have that uh, and waited for, and didn't mean that Jesus ascended into heaven on Easter Day? Because that would get him out of a bit of a problem, because in the beginning of Acts, it it says that uh, Jesus stayed with the disciples, teaching them until uh, the 40 more days were up, And then he went up to heaven, and it's very explicit. The the disciples are gawking at the figure rising into the sky, and a couple of angels say, well, this is nothing. One day you'll see him coming back from the sky. So uh, was that the idea that some scribe rounded off his copy of Luke 24 by having Jesus ascend on Easter evening? Uh, creating a contradiction with Acts chapter 1 or uh, did did Luke originally have the ascension in both places and a copyist cut one of them out to remove the contradiction who knows and uh, so it is kind of important here and there but most of the added stuff doesn't really shed a lot of light on anything so what is the point of it And who wrote it? Well, once again, you won't be surprised to hear me say nobody knows, but the theory I think is most likely is this. Since the added portions do not seem to stylistically contradict the rest of the book, uh, it's quite possible that uh, the Western text represents a later rewrite of Acts by the original author. Luke, Polycarp, whoever you think it was, uh, and that he just thought, you know, I mean, all modern writers do this, right? You go back over what you've written, uh, and even even after it's been published, I think I'll do a new edition of this. And uh, I, uh, that's what I think happened, because uh, uh, I mean, you you could have added all kinds of stuff if you'd wanted to. This does look to me like somebody just. Doing what I do when I'm revising an article, you know, I gotta put that slightly differently. Maybe I should make that more explicit. So that's what I think it is. But again, nobody knows. Um, and uh, let's see. So thanks, Stephen. Um, here is another couple of questions from Luther. He uh, says, let's let's uh, wear our historicity hats. Like so, on that assumption, here goes. One, Paul and James seemingly were the two primary figures in primitive Christianity. Yet since early Christian history, the primary dichotomy or internal competition was assigned to Paul and Peter, as one gets from a casual reading of Acts. How or why do you think the Peter of history became one of the big two, especially considering Paul explicitly and Acts implicitly has him as more a waffling flunky than a leader? I say that about Acts because while he's certainly portrayed as the co-hero beside Paul, it is also obvious that James is in charge, and despite Peter apparently having long since approved slash begun the Gentile mission under God's orders, uh, the Jerusalem church and leadership seem not to have gotten the message, so the more historical-seeming portion doesn't include what the obviously legendary parts uh, do do to demonstrate his leadership role. Do you think, again, assuming historicity, that Peter really was a dominant character, more or less equal to Paul and James, but just a different people in different places and slightly different times? Or is this elevation more a strategic move on the part of, presumably, the proto-Catholic Church? Well, the way Acts tries to explain this is that after the attempt to execute Pete, Uh, that Heragrippa I made, you know, when he is miraculously rescued from from jail uh, in a scene right out of Euripides the Bacchae, uh, it says that he skips town. Uh, He goes and meets his fans who are praying for him, and uh, and, uh, he says he's leaving and to tell James. Well, that sort of implies uh, James is Peter's successor. We we don't see James again until the the Apostolic Council in chapter. I'm sorry, we don't see Peter again until the Apostolic Council in Acts 15, where he comes in as a witness to back Paul's. Of ministry to the Gentiles, and he says, "Hey, look, uh, same thing happened to me. I, I couldn't deny, that the Gentiles are welcome to salvation. You remember what happened a few chapters ago with Cornelius, right? Cornelius, as they called him, uh, and uh, and so, but it's not Peter that makes the ruling, right? It's James. He's in charge now." Uh, And he says, well, okay, how about this? Uh, The Gentiles don't have to keep the whole Torah. It'll be too much of a burden for them. But here's a few measly commandments, very basic, that will uh, make these Gentile Christians at least not offensive to their Jewish neighbors. And, And so he sends Paul and Silas out. Uh, to promulgate these uh, this this letter. Here's the decision we've made. Let's not have any more arguments about it, like the ones in Antioch that led to the delegates showing up in Jerusalem. And it says Paul and Silas did take this to all the churches. And that All of this seems to be fictitious. Uh, it's another version, perhaps, of the Jerusalem meeting in Galatians 3, is it? again uh and uh uh and so the the in fact i i i uh i don't want to get really way off on this, but my theory is that silas is supposed to be james uh it uh it the the Arabic word for the just is salih, and so that's a pun when they call him silas, which is a common Greek name. Uh, but at any, at any rate, uh, uh, then we meet James again in chapter 20 when uh, Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and James is clearly the head of the thing. So Acts makes it look as if Peter had to leave, perhaps preaching outside where it was presumably safe, and James took the reins of the thing. But there are hints as Adolf Harnack pointed out, that there were different Jewish-Christian factions, uh, some uh, that uh, viewed Peter as the leader, or the figurehead, who knows? I mean, he might have been gone, but they venerated his memory as that. Others venerating uh, James. Now, this would have been just like in... uh, uh, just like uh, in early Islam, where you had two leadership factions, one was the companions from whom the first three caliphs were chosen, uh, and uh, the other, and they they were early disciples of uh, uh, of Muhammad supposedly. Uh, Abu Bakr, his uncle, was uh, the the first one. And then I think it was uh, Uthman, and then uh, Umar. I could have those two mixed up in order. Well, alongside those, at least Abu uh, Bakr was a a, a uh, relative, but most of them weren't. But then, uh, alongside them, you had another faction called the Pillars, uh, and they were the blood relatives of Muhammad. Uh, and that would be his daughter Fatima and his his uh, cousin, whom he adopted as a son, Ali. And they tried to unite the two by electing Ali as the fourth caliph, uh, but he was overthrown in a dynastic war, and from there on in, ali was venerated as the first in the line of inspired imams and his partisans were the shia that's what shia means the shiites are the partisans of ali and they had their own set of uh, interpretations of the quran and uh, their own distinctive beliefs and so on Whereas the uh, the ones that uh, they split from were the Sunnis, the ones that relied on the Sunnah or the traditions of the Prophet and the Caliphs, uh, and so what you had was the Caliph in one and the uh, the Imam in the other for centuries and you know down the line. And interestingly, the uh, the Caliphs were personal disciples of the prophet, whereas the pillars, the same word used of the Jerusalem Council of Three, uh, including the brother of the Lord, uh, they are called pillars, and they, they appear to be in different groups. In some sense, it's never spelled out. And I think, and Harnack pointed out that this is probably the only way to understand this item in the uh the the list of appearances in 1st corinthians 15 he appeared to peter and the 12 then to james and all the apostles uh what's the difference between the 12 and the apostles well maybe no difference it could be that uh, both claimed ascendancy over uh, the same group, we don't know, but at least over groups of Jewish Christians. So I think that's what happened. You have two different traditions, and uh, that the author of Acts is trying typically to meld them together. So I hope that helps. Well, let's see. Uh, then uh, second uh, question. Again, assuming historicity for the major characters, what do you think was Paul's actual belief about his religious concepts compared to those of the Jamesian church? Uh, See, I can imagine several basic possibilities which I've named with some modern analogies. Uh, One would be the Lutheran to Calvinist analogy. According to this, uh, Paul believed more or less what Acts tried to promote. Um, Yeah, uh, uh, Paul and James were brothers in the same faith, but just had a few differences of opinion. Everyone involved was getting saved regardless. But then there's the Muslim to Christian analogy and according to this, Paul believed his revelation was real, correct, and superseded that of the James faction, and therefore they were teaching false religion. His followers were getting saved, theirs weren't. Um, The prosperity gospel televangelist to gullible sucker analogy. Okay, Paul's preaching wasn't based so much on true belief as it was on a cynical desire for power and influence. Uh, And he understood that making nice and raising funds for them was part of the game. Nobody is getting saved, and who cares anyway? eisenman's work seems to lead me in this direction without explicitly saying so for example his disdain paul's disdain for the jerusalem leaders despite them being the ones who knew jesus uh, and his uh, do anything to win mantra the possibility that he is related or otherwise close to the anti-zealot herodians Uh, I know we're wildly speculating here, but Paul's potential motivation, if he's the character Eisenman describes, has always been what escapes me. Well, you know, uh, the Ebionites claim that Paul was not even ethnically a Jew. Uh, He did convert because he wanted to uh, marry the daughter of the high priest, and uh, they certainly, you know, look who's coming to dinner. They they wouldn't have a non-Jew, a proselyte. Okay, what the heck. Uh, but uh, either she decided she didn't like him or her dad decided he didn't like him or uh, Paul just couldn't cut it. Uh, the the like it says in Acts fifteen, as a non-Jew trying to be a Jew, it was just too much of a burden. The the alien the the cultural mores were alien to him, and he just couldn't uh, assume the burden. I mean, that's obviously uh, what happened with the uh, the whole bunch of the God fearers or the pious Gentiles of the you know and and uh, they said, I really like your religion, but I got to admit, I just can't. Uh, You know, stop eating ham sandwiches and stuff. Uh, I don't really want to get circumcised. That's all right. You can still attend synagogue and all that. You're just not Jews, but you're okay with us. Uh, And uh, so he, but he was, but that wouldn't have done what he wanted to do, to, to knit him into the high priest's family. And so he decided to take revenge and uh, to start a competing religion. I, I guess he was thinking the same way that the the father of the guys in the Beach Boys was a real nut and insisted on telling them what to record and how to do it and all of that. Uh, and finally they said, look, Dad, you got to get out of this thing. And so he was so affronted he gathered a bunch of guys and started another rival rock group to compete with the one his sons were in. Uh, Well, this is doing the same kind of nutty stuff on a larger scale, supposedly. But who knows if that's true? I mean, it could well be. I mean, you know, there are those statements, when I'm with Jews, I behave as a Jew. When I'm with Gentiles, I behave as a Gentile. Well, which one was he really? It sort of sounds like he's not really either one anymore. Uh, he says in Philippians, I think it is, if I once, uh, some say I still preach circumcision. I don't anymore. What? what? <laughs> There's some weird stuff going on in there. Hard to fit those tiles into the mosaic. Uh, so we don't really know what the story is was there uh, but some have suggested that uh, paul was a an agent for rome that they were supporting him which is why he seems to be in favor with various roman officials and acts and he is uh, cozy with caesar's household and the epistles and all that and what he was trying to do was to Take the sting out of uh, zealot-like Jewish-Christian assemblies, and assuming there were some, as you know, Brandon and others have reasonably argued, and uh, and so uh, he would uh, go to these places and and create and foment riots, as in this last trip to Jerusalem, where it seems to be a bunch of Jewish Christians that are trying to lynch him but he he could appeal to Romans who knew he would be there, and they'd keep him safe, but he would have outed enemies of Rome. Now, this doesn't mean Paul was a liar, right? Paul may simply have, uh, I mean, if this story, if this theory is true, that doesn't mean he was insincere, right? He could have just had a more pacifistic view, uh, a, a realistic accommodationist view of Jewish and Christian relations with Rome and was trying to uh, lessen the impact of uh, of these zealots. Uh, so that doesn't involve Paul being a scheming villain. I think that's kind of what the uh, book, I reviewed in a recent Journal of Higher Criticism, uh, that's kind of what they're saying, I think, uh, sullying his motives a bit, but you don't even need to say that uh, to accept their view uh this obviously would would bear on the uh Fahey theory in creating christ that uh uh christianity itself was a uh, i mean the kind of gospel pro-roman pacifist christianity of the gospels uh was uh a a, a uh, what's the uh Flavian dynasty creation to uh, try to co-opt violent Jewish zealots by having a, a more pacifist messiah and so on, which is not unreasonable either. And uh, so it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. However, the, now let's say the... Uh, the uh, I think the idea of Paul and Cephas... And Apollos being competitors or colleagues in 1 Corinthians, that raises the the picture of possible just different colleagues who attracted personality cults or whatever and didn't want that to happen. But then again, James isn't in that, uh, that lineup, and we don't really know if Cephas and Peter were the same guy. Right, um, But it might suggest, I know my mentor Gordon Fee thought it was that, that they were really, uh, who knows what minor differences they might have had, maybe just differences in emphasis or style. That strikes me as a harmonization, but it's possible. And uh, then, oh, let's see. Uh, what about the uh, Muslim to Christian thing? I get the impression you're, you're getting pretty close on that, because Paul is uh, gives a pretty uh, big uh, blow to the pillars, those who were regarded as something, but that doesn't cut any ice with me in Galatians. Is he talking about them in 2 Corinthians 2? These super apostles, who on apostoloi, literally the super apostles. Uh, I don't think I fall short of them. They have visions. Well, listen to one of mine. Uh, they've done miracles. Hey, me too pulled a rabbit out of a hat occasionally Uh, and he says i know this sounds crazy but you forced me into it by taking this whole approach if i've got to uh compete with them all right i wouldn't have wanted to uh really there's no point but you've thrown down the gauntlet so here goes and he says but that isn't really what it's about being an apostle is going the way of the cross very profound uh, stuff, but the stuff he says it implies they're the ones preaching another Jesus and a different gospel, which isn't a different gospel because there ain't no other gospel than mine. Some people say I'm the lackey of the of the the twelve forget it I didn't get anything from them. Uh, I received a direct revelation from Christ. Uh, and and so forth. So it does sound like antagonism has come. or in Philippians, if he's talking about them. Some people preach Christ out of ambition and so on. That's really weird. Paul is saying he's in prison because he preaches the gospel. So these people are preaching Jesus uh, just to get my goat. Are they really risking inviting arrest to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to annoy you that that seems hard to, uh, to believe it was common in the ancient world to impugn the motives of your opponents it's uh, uh, uh well it still is i guess and uh he says well look it's all the same to me if the gospel is being preached which implies they didn't have a different message and he's saying they just don't mean it, <laughs> it, it uh, that's why i think he's uh there's something else going on there, but nonetheless, in Second Corinthians and Galatians, it sounds like he's talking about the Jerusalem pillars, and they've stabbed him in the back. They're promulgating a false gospel, and let them be anathema. Uh, and so, I uh, I think maybe the the and James, of course, he names him in particular. So uh, I I think you you might be right about that, Luther. Oh, this one is sort of long. I don't think I got the lung power left after the interview I just did immediately before this. But uh, we knocked off some fun questions here, and I'll try to be back a little sooner Uh, next time. Thank you for being uh, with us on The Bible Geek. And if you'd like to hear the human Bible, which uh, I'm hoping to do another one of soon, you can become a uh, Patreon patron. Uh, of mine uh, you just have to kick in a lousy buck a month The oh, more is certainly welcome uh, keep the lights on here uh, and uh, but at that uh, at any rate you can hear the somewhat different human bible there alright thanks for being with me and see you soon